You are listening to The Natural Philosopher with Dr. Mick Pope, a podcast on science, the environment, and the Christian faith. This podcast is written and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to Elders past, present and emerging of all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations, acknowledging that sovereignty has never been ceded. It always was, and always will be, Aboriginal land. Well, welcome to another episode of The Natural Philosopher. This week's episode is entitled, A Christian Humanist Manifesto, or something, now that started out as a bit of a joke with a friend of mine. Big shout out to Beck. I was chatting with her about the name of the program. We've been talking about the issue for a little while. And I said, oh, the title is A Christian Human Manifesto or something. And the or something doesn't form a part of the title. And she said, it totally should. So it totally does. Um, and what it's meant to indicate beyond that little in-joke is that what follows is entirely incomplete it's not as if it really is a full manifesto for what Christian humanism is about, but it really does uh, start to put down some of my thinking on the issue. Now, recently I started reading David Gushy's book, After Evangelicalism, which is aimed in particular at ex-evangelicals, that is, those who've left the evangelical faith in the United States, who may even be on the edge of Christianity because of the kind of associations uh, that we'll talk a little bit about. But this goes back much further. A number of years ago, I read Mark Knowles' The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, which was essentially that he thought evangelicals didn't have much in the way of a mind. Off the bat, I want to say a couple of things. Um, if you were to Google or use your favorite search engine, you could use Ecosia, which is the, the more ethical one. They plant trees if you use that. And search for the term humanists, you would most probably the bulk of what you would see would be secular humanists. In other words, it's an atheist um, kind of construction, a way of thinking about ethics and value in life, etc., from a, an atheistic point of view. And I think that's most laudable. It's better to try and do that than capitulate either to nihilism or a Nietzschean will to power. Um, but I make no apology to secular humanists. I understand that they get a bit annoyed that Christians are, are taking their term. Um, I can call myself what I like. Sorry. And of course, it's not. I'm not taking a dominionist approach. I'm not saying that one can't have, and I certainly can't enforce, uh, the idea that you can only have Christian humanism. These two things will stand side by side, and I guess there would be the potential for Hindu humanism and Islamic humanism. I don't know how they would go about it. I only know about how it is I'm going to approach this. I should note, too, that this is not really a formal apologia. That is, it's not a defense of the consistency of what Christian humanism might look like, but I am trying to lay out some initial thoughts to build upon later. And, of course, finally on this score, one should note that if you look at the history of the Renaissance, particularly in the North, some of the central figures were Christian humanists, like Erasmus of Rotterdam or Thomas More, who wrote Utopia. So we, there's a, a very definite historical precedent. So I'm going to use the title. Uh, one thing I will also say is that when I posted on my Facebook feed about this um, 
Uh, I also want to say something against the post-labelists, those who say, oh, well, I'm just a Christian. I think that's disingenuous because everybody identifies as something or at the very least they are self-centering in their views. In other words, they have a worldview. It might go unreally thought about, but they'll use a title. Everybody identifies as something. So just Christian, even that needs unpacking. But particularly, moving forward now, uh, the rationale for me doing this is the problem with evangelicalism. Now, I speak as someone who's been an evangelical for most of their Christian life. That is consciously so. Now, if you look at the United States of America, for example, uh, unless you've been on under a rock or in a coma for the past four years, you would see a pretty awful stage in the political life and the social life of the United States of America. There are Christians who consistently turn a blind eye to Trump's faults. Uh, be they moral in terms of his personal life, or be they a complete ineptitude in government, uh, a complete disregard for the environment, uh, a complete disregard for religion, even though he leverages off it. And there are people who compare him to Cyrus, who, of course, in the Bible is identified as the Messiah before Jesus. I do not understand this. But, of course, Trump is the tip of the iceberg. White evangelicals consistently vote for the good old party, that is the Republican Party. And they consistently are for small government which and no, no health care and little environmental and other forms of regulation, uh, a pitiful minimal wage, and all these things which I would have thought uh, did not embody Christian principles. And over what? Well, I don't want to dig into this too much because I know it's a hot issue and it's a triggering issue, but basically I think it's control over the womb. And since 1984, it's been a definitive strategy of the Republicans to appoint conservative judges with the sole purpose of fighting Roe versus Wade. Now, I will say two things without getting into depth in this, is that firstly, this procedure, let's call it that, you should think about in terms of harm minimization, both safety and medical and ethical reasons for it to be performed. If it was outright banned, it would still go on in an unsafe manner. But more than this, pro-life does not simply mean one thing, but it means being pro-birth control. And having that included in healthcare, it means being pro-environment, that is, air and water that are safe. And think about how often African Americans, just to take the American context, live in the poorer parts of the neighbourhood, near industry, near freeways. Or the fact that the North Dakota pipeline, an unnecessary pipeline that's transporting oil, was moved from a white neighbourhood to an Indian reserve, reservation, because of the risk of polluting white people's water. And you can't be pro-life unless you deal with climate change, unless you are anti-death penalty, anti-war, and of course some Christians would add, uh, add ve vegetarianism or veganism. But while this has been the particular flag that's been raised, a number of people have identified a very painful and uncomfortable truth, is that 83% of Republicans are white. 52% of those who voted for Trump in 2016 thought that blacks were less evolved. Our 2018 poll found that 59% of uh, Republicans said blacks would do just as well as whites if they simply worked harder. And 70% said that diversity hurts white people. 
A 2018 Harvard study showed that blacks receive longer sentences from Republican judges. So you put it together. And then, of course, you have the the great scandal, uh, the heresy of the prosperity doctrine, which seems so prominent in the United States. You've only to look at people like Paula White or... um, Oh, and I can see the man's face, and I've been watching videos that have not cast him in the best light um, recently. Another TV evangelist getting old. But you get the picture. And and these people are all very pro-Trump and pro-the Republican Party. And of course, if you read The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind by Mark Knoll, uh, Republicans in particular, uh, rather, sorry, evangelicals who identify with Republicans mostly, are anti-science, anti-liberal thought, pro-economy and free market. I talked about William Connolly's uh, paper and his views of the resonance between uh, conservative Christianity and the marketplace. And we're seeing, most recently, anti-mask and conspiracy theorists. Now, of course, I'm not American. I'm an Australian. David Gushy, in his book After Evangelicalism, lines up Sydney evangelical Anglicans in the same frame. And I was a Sydney evangelical Anglican for eight years. Now, I realise... and it's interesting, the two issues I'm about to talk about, the two that Gushy identifies that put him on the trajectory of becoming an ex-evangelical. Now, whatever ultimately you decide ethically and theologically about gay marriage, the fact that the richest diocese in the country spent $1 million uh, on the no case advertising for the plebiscite that we had, uh, which was... Um, put up by a government who should have realised that it would have been a landslide, and indeed it was, for this particular group of Christians to use money in this fashion um, is morally offensive, at least to me. And then the Archbishop has made remarks uh, in the intervening period about people pushing the agenda to leave their church. Well, that's fine. That's perfectly consistent given that the Sydney Anglicans um, got behind GAFCON and aren't willing to stand behind and support their own archbishop, the Anglicans, when it suits them. I realise that's probably inflammatory. I'm not speaking completely in ignorance. Uh, Recently, I was online uh, on Facebook looking uh, at the comments left on an article uh, on climate change and... I shake my head at the responses as I do every time. I've spent a lot of time online uh, defending solid theology and science on climate change. And um, yeah, it frustrates me no end that people grasp hold of, of very poor science and very poor theology. And at the end of the day, particularly given the kind of clericalism that exists in a diocese like that, I blame the clergy, which in turn means I have to blame the theological college for not taking these ethical issues more seriously, particularly climate change. And I must turn around and say, well, you know, the natural reaction I'm going to get is, oh, you can't say that and you're putting yourself above people and you're being judgmental and blah, 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 blah. Um, It's cultishness if you can't criticise your own organisation. And I see too much of that in Christianity can't criticise your leaders at any time, uh, can't cause division by making a firm and what I would have thought was obviously moral statement. I had a a conversation uh, in a private message, so it's okay to talk about it in a little bit of detail with an Anglican clergyman. And I was talking about issues uh, on the optics of the church in general, and I've seen this in the US, the UK and Australia. Oh, we should be allowed to meet even in the middle of a pandemic because blah, 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 blah. 
And, you know, on one hand, I understand um, churches provide, well, a whole bunch of things, you know, uh, community and succor and meet people's um, spiritual needs and hopefully their physical and their emotional needs too, to some degree. Otherwise, it's just Gnostic. Um, but I said that it's a really bad optic given other things that have gone on in the church and it looks a bit privileged. And this person turned around and said, I had a problem with the church. Well, yes, perhaps. Um, and that they couldn't understand why anyone would have because they like the church. That's a little bit lacking in empathy. You imagine, um, re- again, regardless of the side you might take on the issue, if you're an LGBTQI Christian in the church and you're being told one thing in the pews or you're passionate about the environment, you're being told something else. Just a whole suite of things that obviously we don't expect any particular denomination or church or community to be perfect. However, we expect the church to set some kind of standard. So I've decided that evangelicalism is not something I want to define myself against, but I want to find something else that will take me forward uh, and so support my thinking and my scholarship and my activism and so on. And I'm thinking Christian humanism is something that might do that, and it might do that for you. It's not just a reaction, so it's not the same as ex-evangelicalism. I'm not seeking to define myself against evangelicalism. In fact, wanting to keep the best of it, in a sense. And it's not a simple rebranding. So a number of years ago, I read a few books by Roger Olson, who's an American Baptist scholar, and I'm just not a fan of the terms progressive and conservative, but he uses the the term post-conservative evangelical, which means, in the United States context, not six-day creationist, not Republican, um, not this, that, and the other. But I don't even want to engage in that not defining or defining by uh, negation. So, and I mean, the other, the other issue too is that if you think about evangelical Christian as a definition, what it's saying is it's gospel Christian. Evangelical comes from euangelion, which means the gospel. It, it can become an exclusionary arrogance, and it's a tautology. So you believe the gospel, or you're not a Christian. Uh, if you control what the gospel is defined as, you become the gatekeeper of who's in and who's out, and you get uh, Protestant paper popes. Um, so I just I don't even like the term so much um, anymore because it, one can be gospel Christian and Catholic. You don't have to be a Protestant. A Protestant, I think, for this. I should say on a side too, when you look at figures like Thomas More and Erasmus, is that they were convinced Catholics, even though they thought the Catholic Church need reforming. Um, I think that we should be looking, and one part of, for me of this whole idea of um, Christian humanism is unity without unification, by which I mean I want to take the best from every Christian tradition, but I don't feel compelled to, you know, for example, to become part of the one true church, quote-unquote. Again, I don't believe in apostolic succession such that Peter is the, uh, sorry, the Pope is the inheritor of pa- Peter's papal authority, the one ruler of Christendom. That said, I, being, I identified a Protestant as a result of that, but I don't want to fight the Reformation over and over and over again. So constantly redefining myself against Catholics. 
It reminds me of the cartoon of the church membership class and there's uh, someone on the board and they've drawn this chart or, or put up this chart of churches and Christian movements throughout history and the teacher says, so this is where our movement came along and finally got the Bible right and a student says, Jesus is so lucky to have us. What an arrogance. Instead, what we should be doing is holding on to the principle of Ecclesia Semper Reformanda, uh, which is the church is always reforming. So we've never arrived. And with that in mind, after the break, we'll look at the best of what I think evangelicalism embodies. Well, welcome back. If you do pause the program halfway through, um, we're talking uh, before the break about evangelicalism and the value thereof. Now, Bebbington came up with what he called, well, what's been called, I don't know if he called it, the Bebbington Quadrilateral, which was an observation of of British evangelicalism and, and what he considered to be the key points. And I think they're still valuable. The first is biblicism, which is a high regard for the Bible. Now, the problem, of course, is that a high regard for the Bible, and I should say I hold a high regard for the Bible, I'm a Hebrew Bible scholar, or want to be one, student thereof, is that you need to be wary of wooden literalism. You want to include good scholarship. You need to, as Peter Enns does in his book Inspiration and Incarnation, recognize both the human and the divine nature of the Bible and hold those two in tension. What do you do with an idea like inerrancy, when the Bible is written for us, but not to us, and is written to people, for example, who have no idea about human evolution or Big Bang cosmology. I particularly like, when it comes to the idea of inspiration, Tom Wright, uh, and I forget precisely where he says this, talks about the Bible being the book God wanted us to have. We're not free to set texts aside without doing the hard work, and and. So Tom Wright talks about scripture as a five-act play, uh, creation, fall, Israel, Jesus, and the church, or the age of the spirit. And we clearly live in a la- the last one and not in the first, second, third, or fourth. So you have to think about where we sit in the narrative and how different texts apply, but we're not free to do that without doing hard work. So for example, uh, Gushy says that he thinks that John's gospel is anti-Semitic and that we should do our exegesis in light of the Holocaust. And he talks about, I forget the precise phrase, but the the burning child test. Uh, And I will talk about the the book in more detail later. And I disagree. And I don't think he's done hard enough work on John's gospel and leaves behind so much good theology in the process. So while I I respect the whole idea of taking the Holocaust seriously, uh, I think he's thrown the baby out with the bathwater there. So in other words, what we need to do in the end is beware the idea from the Reformation of sola scriptura, or scripture alone, by ignoring the role of tradition and how the Bible came together, indeed our human experience, and the sciences, for example. So let's hold the Bible so high in our view that we do everything that we can with it to understand it in its context and how it applies for us now. Crucicentrism. 
focus on the atonement. Uh, at the center of Christianity, and maybe you've worn a cross around your neck from time to time, is this idea that there's a problem between human beings and God, and on the cross that problem is dealt with. And that's very loose and broad language to talk about atonement, but that's what I'm going to do for now. We need to beware reductionism to one model alone, and you know, certain Christians, it'll be penal substitutionary atonement as the model. And the Bible presents a number of different ways of viewing uh, what happens on the cross. Beware lack of a moral focus. So there's this idea called moral influence theory, and it's not really a model of the atonement, but it is a statement about when Jesus says, take up your cross daily and follow me. Beware of ignoring the cosmic implications of the cross. That is to say, the rampant individualism of Protestantism. Having trouble with my worms tonight. Protest. Crikey, forget it. You get the word. Uh, That ignores all the idea that all things are reconciled to God. That's Colossians chapter 1. Not just human beings, not just individuals, uh, but all things. Beware separation of the cross from the resurrection. You end up with a Gnosticism that denies the body. And beware reducing the Gospels to extended introductions to the cross. You ignore the value of Christ's moral teaching for the new life in the Spirit. Which leads us to the third point of Bebbington, conversionism, that is, transformation inwardly by the Spirit. Of course, we need to beware partisanship of model, and Calvinists, I think, are particularly guilty in this regard about how this works. And if you're not of that particular fault, then you're not a real Christian. But also, and primarily, I think, beware of focusing just on conversion itself. Matthew 28, the Great Commission, talked about going out into the world and making disciples of all nations, not just converts. So maybe it should be discipleism. It's not just about getting on the bus to heaven and not getting off. Hence my point about the moral teachings. That's not just about staying saved, quote-unquote, which, of course, in some views you can't lose. But it's about new life beginning now, not just, quote-unquote, when we go to heaven, when we die. Tight rubbish. And finally, activism, which Bebbington describes as the gospel expressed in effort. Now, this is not, of course, quote-unquote, earning one's salvation, But I think if you fall too far the other way, sola gratia, grace alone, becomes Christianity as an idea or a meme. So you look over as Luther did, Erasmus's sparring partner, that right strawy epistle of James, which makes it quite clear that it might be salvation by faith alone, but faith is never alone. Indeed, it's not really faith, it's faithfulness. And that therefore implies that one will um, embody that. And activism too is not just pietistic efforts. I think about my um, conversion origins in the Navigators movement, where I learnt about the value of quiet time and scripture memory and cold turkey evangelism. Um, But it's also doing good to all, especially those of the household of faith. That's Galatians 6.20, but not exclusively. So there's your social justice. A stupid term. That's just it's just justice. It's being a Christian. Okay. So Christian humanism will embody, I think, the best of the evangelical tradition without a lot of the detritus which is collected upon it. 
Uh, but I want to move in a different direction. So I'm not going to just call myself a post-conservative evangelical or an 18th century or 19th century evangelical or whatever the heck. All right. Here's a, a draft definition of Christian humanism from the Pope himself, Mick. Christian humanism is the belief that human and non-human flourishing is the goal and mission of humanity and that this goal is grounded in the triune God. Now that, even reading it, I think that's probably inadequate, but you get some sense of, because it makes me think of uh, what's it, the Westminster Confession of Faith. And what's the goal, chief goal of man, sick, uh, to know God and enjoy him forever. So I think there's something to that. But what what's that enjoyment mean? It means human flourishing. But because I don't think the Bible is about humanity alone, on the, the creation side of the creation creator ledger, then the flourishing must be human and non-human. So let me give you a brief consideration of the theological basis of this. Firstly, it must in, be centered around the incarnation, which is the idea that in Christ... God becomes truly human or becomes human and shows us what it means to be truly human. It then follows, I think, uh, that one must ascribe to the Trinity, uh, that God is the ground of all being. That's Paul Tillich. I've read nothing of, but that's a quote you'll hear everywhere. But also that God is the ground of all relationship. And I think that's more significant in the Trinity. And there's all sorts of implications in terms of the imminent and transcendent God. That is, God is holy other. And you get that expressed in God the Father. Uh, but God the Son, or God the Child, if you prefer, makes God the Father, or God the Parent. <laughs> Getting into all sorts of debates here, so you get the idea. Um, uh, makes that part of the Godhead known. And, and then God the Spirit is really the imminent part of God or the imminent person of God, uh, not to, you see, you can trip over really quickly and people might look to poke holes. It's too easy to do, right? But the Trinity, I think, is a significant doctrine. And that's one of the re many reasons we can't abandon John's gospel, for goodness sake. From Genesis, we learn of the goodness of creation. And my friend, Brooke Prentice, uh, an Aboriginal spokeswoman, a Waka Waka woman, is the, the CEO of, of Common Grace, and I'd love to have her on the program at some point, reminds me um, that the, the Western tradition in particular always starts in Genesis 3, not Genesis 1. And we need to start with the goodness of creation. There also you will find human beings as the image of God and getting past all the debates about uh, subdue and have dominion. What it means ultimately is we can't get around the fact of human uniqueness. It's a fact that we have to deal with, particularly given the environmental problems, is that we're the ones here stuffing things up. But one of the things I want to really lean on is that the image of God is shared by all human beings. And so, A, we expect truth and truth seekers to be everywhere. That's Acts 17, Paul of the Areopagus. But also the fact that all human beings bear the image of God means that being a Christian humanist means being truly post-colonial in your thinking because, of course, one of the things that allowed uh, Europeans to do horrendous things in the quote-unquote new world, the worlds they invaded, was that they spent time arguing whether or not the quote-unquote natives were really human. And um, we know whenever there's ethnic violence, ethnic cleansing, it begins with dehumanizing the other. 
And if our humanity is ultimately grounded not just in historical contingency of evolution, but in being the image and likeness of God, then we need to look at each other very seriously in our traditions and and shape our scholarship and our way of being as post-colonial. The flourishing of all creation is important, I think, to Christian humanism and the role that humans play in that flourishing. Both uh, the creatures and humans are told to be fruitful and multiply in Genesis 1. Uh, the plants and the animals and human beings are all of the earth, or min ha-adama in the Hebrew in Genesis 2, all out of the earth. And human beings are called to serve and keep the soil. That's Genesis 2.15. Romans 8 tells us that creation longs for us to be transformed, which means no doubt that we'll live in a way that doesn't stuff it up. Uh, so if that's our future, what's our present meant to look like? Well, as best we can do that, and of course, I've talked earlier about the reconciliation of all things to God, and that's Colossians 1 and Ephesians 1. We, of course, can't go past um, a sober assessment of human nature, the human situation, and it begins with our own self-knowledge. Let's use the word, it's the word of sin. Uh, even though for the Hebrews, there is no fall in Genesis 3, there is the violence on the earth in Genesis 6. It's Paul in his encounter of the risen Christ, who in, in Romans um, views it in a different way. And yes, we need to take seriously events in earth history, human history, that have really shaped society. So I, I agree with Gushy that we need to have a post-colonial, sorry, a post-Holocaust lens. Uh, but to, we need to evaluate the human situation, not just individual sin, but in corporate sin the Holocaust, post-colonialism, be post-patriarchal and ecological in our focus. And I think that we need in all of this to have three centres of our thought. The first is theocentric, because I said earlier in the Trinity, God is the ground of all being and relationship. Ecocentric, because there are only two categories. There's creation and there's creator. So we are creatures, human beings. And the creation accounts make that very clear. Even if we have a different role in all of this, we're not separate from creation. And yet, I think we still need to be anthropocentric in that we are called to flourish and to bring flourishing, to image God to the entire of creation. And that idea of to flourish and bring flourishing, I think, is captured by uh, what's written about in Genesis 12, 1 to 3, about Israel being blessed and being a blessing, and extending that now to particularly the role of the church. I'm thinking uh, to flourish and have fullness of life. That's John 10, 10. That doesn't necessarily mean material wealth, you know, set the prosperity gospel aside, and to bring flourishing to others, both humans and non-humans. So what are the aims then of Christian humanism? Well, just briefly, the flourishing of all creation, as I've said, the articulation and practice of the gospel to this end. So to articulate, that is to proclaim, to study, to engage in scholarship of the gospel in a way that promotes the flourishing of all creation and the practice of that. So I'm not talking about an arid intellectualism. I'm talking about an informed, lively intellectual life that leads to a passion of the heart and uh, an activism of the hands and feet. So it means scholarship, the getting of wisdom and not simply knowledge, wherever it is found, wherever it is found in different Christian traditions, in different religious traditions, in scientific wisdom, without capitulating to universalism. 
So no snark about intellectuals, please. Uh, It means engaging in solid biblical scholarship, but it also means theologically being theologically informed in other disciplines and theology informed by other disciplines. In other words, being natural philosophers, as I argued about in my very first podcast. It's about being multidisciplinary, which is being genuinely polymathematic. Um, so it doesn't mean that you're going to make world-class contributions in a variety of areas, but you should read, if you can, widely. Widely, not wildly. Um And of course, as I've said, because it's post-colonial, be diverse in your reading and your scholarship, not just white. Uh, This involves discipleship making, which does mean preaching the gospel and teaching its implications and living them out. It means things like peacemaking, justice practicing and earth caring. It's all about dialogue and cooperation. So, for example, um, being particularly interested in climate change, the Australian Religious Response to Climate Change is an organisation I've had a little bit to do with, and it's a variety of religions. And I'm not ashamed to say that I'm walking, I've marched alongside rabbis and imams and, and people of other faiths and none. It's about dialogue and cooperation. I've just said that, haven't I? Yeah. It also about epistemologically humble. Uh, and I started this, this series of podcasts with exactly that. It's not claiming that you've got everything sewn up particularly in our dialogue with others. So for me, a commitment to being a Christian humanist is to lifelong learning, getting of wisdom, the practice of discipleship, openness to dialogue, and seeing the best in and seeking the best for all. This, I believe, is found in and shaped by Christ, which means invitation and dialogue, not compulsion and command. You can't shove the gospel down people's throats. Leave the conviction to the Spirit, who hovered over the waters of the deep and groans for the true flourishing of all things. So thank you once more for listening and God bless. You have been listening to The Natural Philosopher. This podcast was written and produced by Mick Pope. The theme music is from Antonio Vivaldi's Four Seasons, conducted by John Harrison with the Wichita State University Chamber Players and downloaded from the Free Music Archive. You can subscribe to this podcast on Podbean, Apple and Google Podcasts, and Spotify. You can also like and comment on my Facebook page, Mick Pope, Natural Philosopher.